Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is called Not Just the Tudors. But it also is the Tudors. And this week, to mark the 485th anniversary of Anne Boleyn's death, which was on the 19th of May, 1536, I've gone to town with a two-part podcast special reflecting on Anne's life and her afterlives. Featuring new research and reflections from some of those who have worked to chip away at the myths that stick to Anne Boleyn like barnacles to a rock, this podcast special blows away the dust and breathes new life into a figure who's often more remembered for how she died than how she lived. And today we have a wonderful assortment of new research on Anne. We'll be talking to Dr Owen Emerson at Hever Castle, speaking to Dr Lauren McKay about her work on Anne Boleyn's family. Then there's Kate McCaffrey's brand new discoveries in Anne's Book of Hours, which is very exciting news for anyone who works on this period. This week, I went on location to Anne Boleyn's childhood home of Hever Castle. Dr Owen Emerson is Castle's supervisor and I caught up with him to think about what we can learn about Anne from her own home. I like to think of this as Anne's happy place, mainly because nice things happen to her here rather than other locations associated with her. We know that she probably moved to Hever around 1505, which is when Thomas Boleyn took ownership of the castle from his father. And although we don't have a huge amount of information about the early life of the Boleyn children here, we do have very good clues that they were located here, not least the graves of Thomas and Henry Boleyn Jr., who were buried at Hever Church and at Penshurst. The early years, there was probably quite a lot of loss. Two of the Boleyn boys died But I can imagine this being a place where Anne was educated. She would have begun her education here. And most likely her parents were involved in that education, particularly Elizabeth, her mother. Thomas Boleyn was a humanist. He educated all of his children well. And he was a very keen and able diplomat and was able to secure really advantageous positions for his daughters at European courts. So I like to think that Anne's education and her passions began here at Hever. She was unusually highly educated for a girl, wasn't she? She really was, and you can see that evidenced in a lot of her surviving written words. In her books of hours, she writes the most poignant and beautiful couplets. Everyone that knew her said how engaging she was, how sort of vivacious she was. She had a wonderful character. And I would say a very keen intellect as well. 
I would almost argue that she was on a par with Henry in terms of being able to debate. And I think that engagement underpinned a lot of the turmoil that their relationship went through. It wasn't all sunshine with Anne and Henry. There were some storms, shall we say, where they would butt heads and they'd make up. And I think underpinning that was her amazing intellect. I like to think about what architecture can tell us about people, you know, what it's designed to convey. Like Hampton Court, for example, feels absolutely designed to convey the magnificence of Henry VIII. When you think about Hever, what do you see here that makes you think of Anne Boleyn, or indeed the character of her father, Thomas Boleyn, and what should a visit to Hever not miss? I like to think of Hever as the place that the Boleyns didn't need to occupy. They had up to 40 manors at the height of their power. They chose to live here, and I think it was emblematic of their rise. In just three short generations, the Boleyns had gone from petty crime to the Lord Mayor of London with Geoffrey Boleyn. And this was his big purchase. In fact, he couldn't actually afford to buy it outright. He went into a syndicate with his brother, Thomas. So I think it meant a lot to the Boleyns. I think it was the jewel in their crown. But it also sat at the very heart of Thomas's world. It's a half a day's ride to Greenwich Palace, Henry's favourite palace. And then again, half a day's ride to the coast where he does his business for the king. So necessarily you're going to situate your family in the middle of that. Blickling's quite a long way away from court, so it's not particularly feasible or desirable to do those journeys repeatedly. But Hever really comes into its own when Anne returns to the English court. Because when things so dramatically heat up between Anne and Henry... I like to think of Hever as the safety valve. We often see Anne retreating to Hever, sometimes because of a perilous situation like the sweating sickness in 1528. But also I think she's taking the edge off of the heat of court. And Hever is dinky. It's essentially three family rooms upstairs and some public rooms downstairs. So you've probably got seven staff, something like that. It's a tiny household and rather than keeping an invading army out, she can keep her secrets inside. It's very easy to keep all of that information nice and quiet here at Hever. So I think it really comes into its own during that wonderful period and it's just possible that Anne makes that decision to marry Henry when she's situated here at Hever and it's hard to imagine a more important or consequential decision than she made in accepting his marriage proposal. One thing I was really struck by walking around Hever today is that this is what a child would draw if they wanted to draw a fairy tale castle with its turrets, with its moat, with its drawbridge and portcullis. I mean it is the perfect miniature castle and one of the best pieces of evidence that we have for Henry and Anne's relationship. Disproportionately on one side is Henry's letters to Anne, and Anne would have been reading many of them here. Most of them were written in 1528 when she was here with the sweating sickness. And I'm just really struck with the correlation between the fact you've got this romantic castle and these deeply romantic, I mean, erotic, impassioned letters. Absolutely. It's iconic in its proportions. It is, as you say, it's a fairy tale childhood castle absolutely beautiful 
And I think that's part of its endearing charm. Many, many generations have actually come to visit Hever. It didn't open up in 1963. People have been coming since the 18th century on a sort of apply-as-you-arrive basis. Hever's been long in the public consciousness. But you're right, Anne was often here alone. Thomas was often abroad, and Elizabeth Boleyn, her mother, was often at court. So during those months in 1528, when she does come here, Annie's often the most principal person in the house, so she would have situated herself in the best bedchamber. It would have been her own household, essentially. And you're right, Henry bombards her with these incredibly revealing love letters, and we do only have one side of the conversation. So it is a very one-sided affair from our perspective, as it were. And I do often wonder if Anne's retreats to Hever were slightly strategic. Was she making the heart grow fonder by her absence? But it is incredible. The letters themselves are now in the Vatican archives, and we do have some facsimiles of them here. But to think that she read them at Hever here, and reading, from my perspective, reading Henry writing your abode at Hever, and thinking she held that letter here, you know, she received it here, it's quite extraordinary, really. We're in the place that she read it, and it makes it so much more immediate as an observer and a reader. I think you might be right. I mean, he talks in them about how her absence is grievous to him. And he also talks about the beautiful words that she has used in her letter. So we know that she is saying things to him that are exciting his desire just as much as he is saying it to her. It's frustrating we don't have those. But if coming to Hever today, what should they be looking out for as they visit? I think we have one of the best public, privately owned collections of early modern portraiture outside of the National Portrait Gallery, really. We have some incredibly exciting and important pieces, not least Arthur, probably one of the only portraits to be painted in the Prince of Wales' lifetime. But I do think the heart of our collection are Anne's books of ours. Very few people have had the privilege to hold them, and I know you are one of those people. But just viewing the books that she owned, the books she loved... One of them she almost certainly inherited. It was created in 1410 to 1450 and most likely came down from a female relative. And one of our stewards, Ian Smith, always says those have Anne's DNA all over them. And I think that's true in more ways than the obvious because we do have her words. We may not have the replies from Henry, but we do have her words in those books. And she wanted to be remembered. I mean, one of them is explicitly asking us to remember her. They are quite extraordinary to experience in person. They're the highlight of my day every time I see them. I often think to myself of Anne's last words. She entreated us to meddle of her cause. And I think you couldn't do better than starting with her own objects and trying to understand them. Some of the most tenacious myths around Anne are associated with her family. That they came from nowhere, that Anne's father pimped her out, that her brother was involved in all sorts of sordid activity. To find out more about Anne Boleyn's family, I'm going to talk to Dr Lauren Mackay, who's written books about the Tudor court, including 
Among the Wolves of Court, the untold story of Thomas and George Boleyn. Lauren, tell us about the origins of the Boleyn family. Where do they start? Because one of the great stories about them is that they rise from the dirt. Is that true? <laughs> it's a very popular narrative, absolutely, and it plays into this idea that the Boleyns were nobodies, came from nothing, and their only claim to fame really is the fact that Anne Boleyn captured Henry VIII's attention. But no, there's far more to the story. In fact, the Boleyn story is really the story of many families at court in that particular era. They rise generation by generation. And in fact, the story with the Boleyns really takes shape in a little town called Sol in Norfolk, which is sort of a one pub, one horse town minus the pub, with Geoffrey Boleyn. And Geoffrey Boleyn, who was Anne Boleyn's great-grandfather, he actually elevated the family from simply a family who worked on the land to landowners themselves. And he formed the blueprint for this idea for this mercantile family rising through the echelons of society. And what he did brilliantly was to marry into a very ancient and noble family. So he married Anne Hu. This particular connection acquired more land and gentility and wealth. Now, their son, William Boleyn, would go on to be a very well-respected man of Norfolk as well. And he did the exact same thing. He married into the prestigious ancient noble Butler family, which is where we see the earldom of Ormond. And their son, our Thomas Boleyn, would do the same. He married into the powerful and noble and illustrious Howard family. So you have three generations building upon these foundations from generation to generation. That's really how they become a fixture at court. And crucially, by the reign of the first Tudor, Henry VII, they are already part of the social fabric of Henry VII's court. So we know that William Boleyn was a very well-respected courtier, so Thomas's father, and Thomas Boleyn himself was actually esquire of the body under Henry VII's reign, so he had that personal, intimate access with the king. And of course, this is the society upon which patronage is absolutely integral to your rise. So that connection with the king is vital to your success. So really, the Berlin story typifies this rise from a very modest beginnings to something that was quite brilliant. And this all took place before Anne Boleyn was even born. And that's so important to remember. This isn't just one woman on the make. This is a story of a family that has been moving into more and more elevated circles as time has gone on. And we'll talk in a second about who Anne's parents were. But first of all, I want to ask you about the spelling, <laughs> because the other thing that comes up is about how we spell Berlin and whether we pronounce it like that. Dermot McCulloch always says Berlin, and I wonder where you end up here. It's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure, isn't it? And even the Boleyns couldn't really figure out how they liked it. I think it depended on their moods. So Thomas Boleyn would sometimes write his name B-O-L-O-Y-N-E or B-O-U-L-A-N, so there was a bit of a French vibe. I obviously pronounce it Boleyn, and I see it as B-O-L-E-Y-N. But when I hear Boleyn, I just think it's such a romanticised version of the name, and you don't see that in their generation at all. So definitely the traditional Boleyn is my I go to. So Thomas Boleyn, who happens to be the father of a girl called Anne, tell us about him. Gosh, where to start? So 
Thomas Boleyn really began to rise at court under the reign of Henry VII. He makes his first appearance about the age of 20 in the King's Army, of all places, and he's alongside his father, and they're putting down a rebellion, uh, the Cornish Rebellion, during one of the many riots during Henry VII's reign. I don't think the military was really his scene, so we actually see him sort of as a fixture at court. Now, I think Thomas Boleyn was very lucky because he grew up in a world of wealth and privilege. So far from being this scheming Machiavellian man, he didn't need to have any of that because he was so well placed. So when Thomas Boleyn's a young man at court, he has these incredible connections. His grandfather is Thomas Butler. Now, Thomas Butler was Lord Chamberlain to Elizabeth of York, and he would also go on to be Lord Chamberlain to Catherine of Aragon in her early years as queen. That's quite a connection there. But he's also flanked by his father-in-law, the powerful Earl of Surrey, Thomas Howard. These connections offer this entree into court that very few young men actually would have enjoyed. So the young Thomas Boleyn navigates these spheres of court. He's part of the inner sphere for Henry VII. He's also part of the political spheres. He really gets his big break uh, at the beginning of Henry VIII's reign. So in 1509, he's already been present at all the coronations and christenings and weddings and funerals. And there he is at Catherine of Aragon's arrival into England. And he's present front and center at Henry VIII's coronation as well, where he's made a knight of the bath. So just to remind listeners, all before Anne Boleyn is on the scene. But crucially, what happens in the first years of Henry VIII's reign is that he suddenly appears as a new face in the diplomatic lineup. And it's odd because it really comes from nowhere. He has no history as an ambassador. He doesn't, as far as we know. And he's working all of a sudden alongside real stalwarts of Henry VIII's diplomatic stable. So men like Thomas Spinelli and Richard Wingfield, And this really comes about because of these connections, his grandfather and his father-in-law, who both knew the architect of Henry VIII's diplomatic policy, and that is the one and only Richard Fox, who would, of course, go on to mentor Thomas Wolsey. So that's where that interesting connection comes into. Now, I'm not going to go his entire life because that would take us the entire evening. But Thomas Boleyn, obviously, this is still in the very early years of Henry VIII's reign. He begins to ascend at court and to really cultivate this reputation It's actually what Stephen Gunn refers to as the new men. He's one of those new men because he doesn't necessarily have the noble lineage, apart from those few little insertions throughout the generations. But he himself is not actually noble, but he has skill. He has political acumen. There's something about him that recommends him to the power men of court. So I think that's very, very important. So by the time Anne Boleyn does burst on the scene in the 1520s, Thomas Boleyn is already one of the most well thought of, respected, reliable, trustworthy men of court. He is an absolute fixture and he's powerful, he's influential, and he certainly doesn't need to rise any further on the back of his daughter. Yes, and I think that's such an important corrective because there's been a kind of narrative about Thomas Boleyn being graspingly ambitious to the point of prostituting his daughter. And that's really not what's going on here at all. That's right. And I say this is quite problematic because when we do call Thomas Boleyn a pimp, what we are in fact actually saying is we are calling Anne Boleyn a whore because you can't really have one without the other. These terms are intrinsically linked. So really that's doing Anne Boleyn 
a disservice as much as it is doing Thomas a disservice. And it's easy to look at the Berlin story backwards because we know how it ends. We know where it all ends up. And it's easy to kind of say, well, he should have protected her from Henry. He should have kept her out of harm's way. What we are in essence saying, he should have controlled her. That's what we're really saying. This is a woman who had a sense of identity and a sense of herself and a sense of what she wanted her life to look like. And I think for Thomas Berlin, it must have been such an impossible position as her father to try and guide her, but also support her wherever he could in what was perhaps one of the most dangerous, you know, there was no telling where this was going to go, this story. It must have been incredibly unsettling for Thomas Boleyn. Also, we're saying that he needed to be able to tell the future. And it's so easy to look at this with hindsight. No queen of England had ever been executed before. This is not something that you can see is going to happen in advance. Exactly. There's no template to follow, no precedent on which they can base this. I mean, absolutely. It would have just been so difficult to predict. And there was no telling, you know, which way Henry VIII was going to jump. I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they? Why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen, his anointed queen? So it's sort of, sometimes I feel as if Anne Boleyn was perhaps just daring him and knowing if she pushed him that far, he would back down. And instead he called her bluff. Mm, I think you might be right there. You mentioned early on that Thomas Boleyn had married into the Howard family. So tell us about Elizabeth, Anne Boleyn's mother, and the family she comes from. Certainly the Howard family was interesting. They had a very interesting lineage and they had been powerful for many decades, but they backed the wrong horse at the Battle of Bosworth. So they found themselves in a sort of a state of political eclipse, shall we say. And that sort of also meant a bit of a financial eclipse. So they weren't doing that well when Thomas Boleyn married Elizabeth. And the thing is, I think the Boleyns had great timing when it came to these families because they always tended to marry them when they were just down on their luck. And it seems like a fortuitous match. So Elizabeth's father, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, was incredibly well-respected. He was quite a formidable man at court. As I said, he was well-placed as Lord Chamberlain. And I think the problem is, you know, the Howards struggled throughout Henry VII's reign to be trusted again and to be seen as loyal as well. So, in fact, the Boleyn marriage actually benefited them as well. Now, for Elizabeth Boleyn, I mean, we know that she was close to her father. There was a very close relationship between Thomas and his father-in-law as well. And of course, she had some very interesting brothers. So my least favorite being Thomas Howard, (laughs) the future Duke of Norfolk. It's very hard to like Thomas Howard. Her other brother was Edward Howard, the dashing Lord Admiral, Henry VIII's first Admiral, who died tragically at sea. They were a very diverse family. And the young men, apart from Thomas Howard, were all out there making names for themselves. And they were all very close to Thomas Boleyn as well. So it was a very interesting connection between that second generation. And of course, the Howards would continue to rise. They would continue to be seen as powerful. And they were eventually trusted by Henry VIII again. But they tend to eclipse Elizabeth Boleyn absolutely. From what we can tell in the sources, they seem to have a good marriage. There was no reason to suggest that they didn't. They were successful with their children. And we do have evidence that it was somewhat close-knit because, of course, when Anne Boleyn's in the tower... She's asking after her mother. She's worried about her mother. And Elizabeth Boleyn was never the same after the death of her children. So, in fact, she's sort of a footnote in history. And it's a bit sad, really, that we don't have more about her because she's definitely someone who I think we'd love to rehabilitate in that sense. Mm, I couldn't agree more. There's a good novel to be written there. So tell me also about 
Anne Boleyn's siblings. And particularly, let's start with Mary, because there's some question, isn't there, over whether Mary was the elder or the younger sister? Yes. I'm sort of torn about that because we really don't have the evidence. But Mary is a complex figure in the sense that, I mean, she's been so romanticised, of course, in fiction in the last few decades. She is very different from her siblings. I don't think they see eye to eye. I don't think she and her father saw eye to eye at all. They're very different people. And we see this, of course, in their fractious relationship throughout Mary's life. I think that Mary did what she wanted and didn't have too much thought for how it was going to look or how people would perceive her or her family. And we see this, I think, of course, when she becomes Henry VIII's mistress. Now, I argue that it's because she becomes Henry VIII's mistress that she has a breakdown in her relationship with Thomas Boleyn, her father. And I base that on the fact that Thomas is very, very close to his son-in-law, William Carey. I see in the correspondence and in the sources this desire to cultivate his son-in-law much the way that his own father-in-law cultivated his career as well. So we see in the evidence that he's bringing his son-in-law to various meetings. He's actually hosting meetings at his son-in-law's residence. And then, of course, boom, Mary Boleyn goes into the king's bed. I think that was really the moment when there was a breakdown in their relationship. And of course, when William Carey dies, a sort of Thomas Boleyn has to be prodded a little bit to help his daughter. I think he's so angry at her because of what had happened. That wasn't what he wanted for her. He had brokered this great match. The Careys were a great family. William would have gone on to probably be an amazing courtier with a fantastically brilliant career. And it's all cut short. And now Mary's in this position, in this limbo. And I think Thomas is very angry about it. And the last person that we must talk about, of course, is George Boleyn, later Lord Rochford, and famous for being one of the men executed with Anne on charges of incest. And one of the things that's been said about George Boleyn, which you challenged, is this idea that he was a homosexual or that he was actually having a relationship with his sister. Take us through some of these stories that have been told about him and what the evidence actually says. So it comes up and we know, obviously, it sort of starts with Ritha Warnick and a few other historians. And it sort of is based on this idea that he wrote in a book. It was his songbook and it was this book as mine, George Boleyn. And then there seems to be some indication that perhaps Mark Smeaton signed the book except that a lot of men signed the book. Thomas Wyatt also signed the book, so you can't really make a judgment out of that. Well, I don't know. Signing a book really is tantamount to a relationship. And my... I have relationships <laughs> oh my, with so many Oh, people. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically what it's based on, and also Cavendish's poem that he deflowered maidens. He was involved in all sorts of incredibly sordid activity. But at no point is it actually stated that that's what they're talking about. We have to remember, Cavendish isn't a fan of the Boleyns. What he's trying to do is to paint this picture of this is such a debauched family. This is how they operated. This is why they are the worst of the worst. And this is why they deserve their fate. They are a salutary lesson. Cavendish, of course, being gentleman servant to Cardinal Thomas Wolsey and blaming the Boleyns for the downfall of his master. So he has a dog in the race. We could Exactly. So he absolutely has it out for the Boleyns and he always has. And this is just painting that portrait. But that's really where it comes from. Now, the fact that it's somehow taken hold in the imagination of so many historians and novelists is unfortunate. The tragedy of George Boleyn is that he never really got going in terms of his career. 
because everything from the moment he became an adult was tied in to Anne Boleyn's marital drama. And so he was never taken seriously. He was never able to be seen as a diplomat and ambassador in his own right, which I think was, of course, his his ambition to be like his father, to follow in his father's footsteps. No one took him seriously then. And in fiction now, we don't really take him seriously. He's, uh, he's nasty. There's never really been a nuanced depiction of him. It's quite a shame. Thank you very much for introducing us to Anne's family and giving us some really much-needed background. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 
Kay McCaffrey has just finished her MA at the University of Kent and in her research she made some wonderful discoveries about Anne Boleyn's books of hours. And so I was lucky enough to catch up with her at Hever and be among the first to learn what she'd unearthed. My research focused particularly on the smaller of the two books of ours at Hever. It's the printed book, it's the more unassuming volume, especially when compared to its manuscript counterpart. And last January I was able to study these closely and what's previously been known about the printed book of ours is very little. It's rarely been studied in scholarship, which is surprising to me, but exciting for me. And it was previously thought to contain only one inscription, which is Anne's famous rhyming couplet, Remember me when you do pray, that hope doth lead from day to day. It's significant because it does contain her signed note, so obviously both of Heva's books of ours do contain her signed inscriptions. And actually only three books of Anne's that survive today contain her signed note, so it's significant in that. But that's pretty much all that's been known up until this point about this smaller of the two printed hours. And my close study revealed, yes, some new and exciting information about its 16th century provenance and its connections to Anne. I think the only thing to say is, please tell us what you found. Tell us about its provenance. Absolutely. So it was during my close study of the printed book that... I came across and uncovered what appeared to be the remnants of four further inscriptions within the book. And I was able to study these under an ultraviolet light and use photo editing software and spent months trying to decipher what they said. And I was able to uncover the partial transcriptions for all of them. I think most of them, full transcriptions will be elusive because they've been so heavily erased in parts. But I was able to get the names of the authors of these inscriptions. And so because of that, I've been able to reconstruct the path that this book took and the hands through which it passed in the years after Anne's ownership. And I think what emerges is some really compelling and personal stories that link to Anne and hopefully can give us some sort of fresh and unique perspectives into her 16th century afterlife and her reputation and her memory in the years following her execution. That's really fascinating. So tell us what the inscriptions say and what you think that can tell us about how we've remembered Anne Boleyn, how she was remembered in the decades after her death. The four inscriptions seem to all revolve around very provincial Kent gentry families. So the book seems to have stayed within very local hands to Hever and within trusted connections of sort of one extended family. And the names of those who wrote within the book after Anne are John Gage, Philippa Gage, his wife, Elizabeth Shirley, who was the sister of Philippa Gage, and then Mary West, who was the niece of Elizabeth Shirley and Philippa Gage. And so there's this very kind of complex family tree and sort of interconnected network of owners who emerge from the pages of this book. There's one transcription which I have pretty much in full, and that's the one written by Elizabeth Shirley. And that reads, my known good niece, Joanna, I require you to pray for your aunt with this here prayer. And then she signed her name, Elizabeth Shirley. Inscriptions like this kind of inscriptions of remembrance, like Anne's own note in the book. But what's particularly exciting, other than the kind of local links to Kent, is that they seem to have primarily been written by women. And so there appears a very kind of gendered history and a real story, I think, of female community and solidarity and bravery 
that emerges and revolves around the protection of Anne's signature and her place within the book, which obviously would have been a sort of dangerous item to own in the years after her downfall with her name inside it when it was encouraged to sort of erase her from history. So it seems to have been this very kind of female family that protected Anne's place within the book's history and added their own notes in this kind of wonderful regeneration of interest. How do you know that the inscriptions are from the decades after Anne's death as opposed to, say, 19th century inscriptions? It took a lot of studying the paleography of the letters and the spelling and the ways in which the notes were written date to mid-16th century, which falls in nicely with when I was able to sort of figure out who these people were and how they were all connected to each other. And that all seems to centre around the sort of decades after Anne's execution. So you've identified them not just by name, but you've actually found these people elsewhere? You know things about their lives? What do you know about them? Sir John Gage probably is the most famous of the authors inside this book. He was very prominent politician in Henry's court and later through to the court of Mary I and it's him and his wife who have both written inside it. Mary West was part of the West family who were the Barons de la War so they were a fairly prominent family as well and Elizabeth Shirley and Philippa Gage were both daughters of Sir Richard Guildford who was a close friend of Henry VII by his first wife although he later married Joan Vaux who was the lady governess of Margaret and Mary Tudor. So these are kind of people who were known well at Henry's court but they seem to have been mainly in the provinces in Kent and especially the women who wrote in this book seem to have been mainly from this area. So sadly we don't know huge amounts about these individual women. It's always harder to uncover information about the women's lives but the families that they were part of were important at the time and especially in Kent. That's a phenomenal piece of historical detective work that you've done. (laughs) What do you think it tells us about the memory of Anne? Is it that it's something provincial, that it becomes just a memory you keep in the county from which she came? Or do you think it has something more to tell us about her status in people's minds? Well, I think it can tell us a lot in terms of how Despite these widespread attempts to discredit Anne in the years after her downfall, she was still cherished and held close by people who knew her or had a close connection to her. And I was able to discover a connection between these other owners and Anne, which comes through another woman, Elizabeth Hill, who was the wife of the sergeant of the King's cellar, Richard Hill. And we have sort of some anecdotal evidence to suggest that they were close to Anne. And she actually grew up only seven or eight miles away from Anne's childhood home at Hever. And so I think that this was probably a kind of trusted connection that Anne passed the book to Elizabeth Hill. And Elizabeth Hill's mother was Elizabeth Shirley, who was one of the authors of the inscriptions within the book. And so I think what we can see is a kind of treasuring and cherishing of Anne's memory by those who knew her, but also this kind of very brave and sort of subversive paradox to keep her place safe in the book because at the same time in the same book we have evidence that these people who owned the book were very law-abiding citizens so we can see that they erased the saints of St Thomas Becket and the names of popes after that became law in 1537 but at the same time in this paradox they're harboring the secret of Anne's place within the book and keeping that safe and we see that kind of continue across generations because There's also a potentially emotional and poignant link to Anne's daughter, Elizabeth I, 
who was a close friend of Mary Hill, who was the daughter of Elizabeth Hill, so it's kind of touchingly echoed in the friendship of Anne and Elizabeth Hill's children. Mary Hill married Sir John Cheek, who was obviously the childhood tutor of Elizabeth I, and stayed a close friend of Elizabeth throughout her life. And this touching idea that Mary Hill was able to show Elizabeth this book, which contains her mother's signed inscription, and kind of share this piece of Anne's history with her in this way. And so I think, yeah, it's a very kind of female community that's crossed generations, that cherished Anne's memory, despite this sort of widespread dishonouring. What I love also is that you are bringing to life people whose names might not be that familiar. Most people have heard of Anne Boleyn, but not many people have heard of Elizabeth Hill. But you're bringing these stories to life and you're delving into the sort of wider circles around the Tudor court. And I suppose we could imagine that this is a Protestant story in some ways. If they're very willing to cross out the Pope's name and if they're cherishing Anne's memory, those two things might be connected by their faith at a time. Do you think that's part of it? I think certainly that is part of it because, as you said, we see in that kind of deletion of Thomas Beckett and the popes that there's at least a conformity or a compliance to the kind of evangelism at the time. But whether that's purely religion or also I think definitely is the personal connection to Anne. But with this personal connection comes a suggestion that maybe they were connected also in that religious way as well and in these kind of Kent networks that were close to the Boleyn family here at Hever it feels like perhaps that that remained in kind of similar religious circles as well. And you only found this out because you have lifted these erased inscriptions back off the page. Do we have any idea why they were erased or when? My theory is that they were probably erased maybe late 19th century. There was a kind of trend to clean your manuscripts or your books before they were sold to American owners particularly. And this particular book was bought by William Waldorf Astor when he purchased the castle in 1903. Sometime after that date, he purchased this book. And so I suspect that it was probably cleaned of all the inscriptions that didn't seem important. Anne's one was obviously the most recognisable, the most important note. And there's a sort of irony of this kind of full circle story that it was these other inscriptions and names that protected Anne's place in the book. And then sort of 500 years later, they were all erased. And it's only Anne that we remember now. But hopefully this research can help to kind of restore their place in the book's history and their place in protecting the book, because I think... At the time, it would have encouraged the book's destruction, the fact that Anne was within this book and had such a prominent place within this book. But then later in her daughter Elizabeth's reign, her place within the book encouraged its survival. And today, I think that's probably why we still have it. So the book of ours tells us something about Anne Boleyn, and we've got that connection with Elizabeth I. Are there any other queens we should be remembering here? Yes, so there's another famous Tudor queen who is related to this book, which I discovered in my research, that Anne was not the only leading lady at court to own a copy of this very same book. And actually, Catherine of Aragon also owned a copy of this exact same printed book, which is currently held in the Morgan Library in New York. And so we have a very exciting and interesting and intriguing connection between these two famous rivals in love and in power and in religion. And there's a sort of compelling image that they perhaps even used these same books together at prayer at court. 
And this also comes from a very interesting moment in the Henrician court with the year being 1527, 1528. So Anne's star is very much on the rise and Catherine's on the wane. But there's uh, very interesting implications, I think, for the relationship between these two women and their book ownership for the fact that they both owned the very same copy. I think we also need to know a little bit about what the Book of Hours contains so we can have a sense of why two queens wanted possession of this book. Books of Hours were a very popular book at the time, and they were sort of probably best described as scriptural prayer books. They contained lots of prayers from the Psalter, Psalms, there was often a calendar at the beginning, litany of saints within. The body of the text was usually sort of a devotion to the Virgin Mary. And so there's a female connection to these books. We often seem to have a kind of special relationship between women owning Books of Hours. I think it was seen as an appropriate outlet for literacy for women at the time. And they were traditionally Catholic texts and largely written in Latin. But actually these copies have several prayers in the vernacular, so in English language, which is interesting knowing Anne's sort of religious affiliations, but also Catherine's. So yes, it's perhaps a book that was very appropriate for them to both use at prayer. And I suspect probably that it was a group of Catherine's household who all received a copy of this book so that they could kind of engage in um, group reading. Unfortunately, though, that gives me a sense that this is perhaps thinking ill of Anne, but did she choose this book to write this message in? Was there an extra meaning there? If this was a gift from Catherine, would Henry have known that? <laughs> Do you think there's anything in that or am I just thinking ill of her? I think it's certainly possible. I think it's interesting that the dating to Anne's inscription, I suspect, is around 1528. It has to be before sort of 1529, the end of 1529. And perhaps it seems like something that she would have written while she was actually at Hever recovering from the sweating sickness. And so I suspect maybe it was something more to do personally and not necessarily a slight at Catherine, but I think there's definite emulation and imitation in Anne's ownership of the same book as Catherine. And there's some interesting comparisons across the decoration in both copies, which suggests that Anne was perhaps even aiming higher than Catherine with her very, very highly decorated copy. And what we have to remember about both women and these books tell us is that they are highly educated. They're learned women, they're reading texts, of course, in English, but also in French and also in Latin and also in a range of other languages. And so they have that in common as well, don't they? And they are both ardent women of faith, even if they differ on exactly how that faith should be manifested. I think there's almost a real unifying point with the knowledge that they both own the same book because they are so often seen as sort of opposites or rivals. But I think this is a yeah, very unifying moment to realise that they both would have been engaging with this kind of literature. We know that they both owned multiple copies of Books of Hours, but this particular printing seems to unite them both in this religious and educational thinking. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.